ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The Hamas attack on Israel in October 2023 and the subsequent bombardment of Gaza really overshadowed the turmoil that Israel's been facing for decades. And that turmoil is often between Israelis themselves. For much of 2023 protests, uh, they drew hundreds of thousands of people, absolutely roiled the country. The hard-right government had tried to overhaul the role of the Supreme Court. They triggered mass anger. At one point, army reservists, and they're crucial to the defence of the country, said they wouldn't turn up for duty. Uh, That did change after the Hamas attack. But still, Israel's president, Isaac Herzog, has even warned of, yes, civil war. And all this, as modern Israel, marks its 75th birthday. Isabel Kirshner is Jerusalem correspondent for the New York Times. For 30 years, she's watched Israel's social fabric unravel. Her new book is called Land of Hope and Fear, Israel's battle for its inner soul. We spoke before the Gaza war. Here's Isabel Kirshner. It's always trodden a fine line. Some people would say there's a kind of contradiction in those terms that's inherent and inbuilt, and you can't be an ethnically Jewish state with a Jewish majority and, a, for example, an Arab minority of Palestinian Arab citizens of the state making up 20% of the country, plus the fact that Israel is still 50-odd years on from the 1967 war, still occupying the West Bank and uh, controlling largely the uh, entry in and out of, of the Gaza Strip, where you have millions more Palestinians who are living without Israeli citizenship. Some people would say that's a contradiction in terms, but Israel defined itself from the beginning as Jewish and democratic. The uh, Declaration of Independence spoke of equality of rights regardless of ethnicity, gender, race, religion, etc. What we're seeing now is, yes, a clear divide between the people who want Israel to be more Jewish. And we have in the government people that I can really only describe as Jewish supremacists or nationalists who were on the fringes of Israeli politics. And are now at the centre. And they're now at the centre and pulling a lot of the strings Mm. because we have a coalition government and they have a lot of leverage. They would say, no, we just want to improve democracy here. We're trying to uh, shift some of the authorities from unelected judges of the Supreme Court and give more power to the elected government. But the elected government here can have a majority of one in our one single House of Parliament and have the say over everything if this judicial overhaul package went through as this government wants, then we would be in a situation, frankly, of a much less of a liberal democracy and more of a kind of tyranny of the majority, potentially. Yeah, but the real question is, though, Isabel, and, and this comes through very strongly in your book, 
there is a very fragile majority, as it were, Jewish majority, if you count up all the people between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. I mean, isn't this the problem that you cite in the book? You've got settlers in the occupied territories. Thousands of them are close to the Jordanian border. Israel controls this um, so-called Area C that has 60% of the land mass. This surely forecloses any prospect of a viable Palestinian state, doesn't it? That's one of the big questions looming over the future of this country, no matter how you look at it. And I think one of the root causes that you're identifying here, broadly speaking, is that even the Jewish majority here is extremely divided within itself. And yes, the settler wing or the religious Zionist ideological pro-settler wing that wants to hang on to that territory of the West Bank where the Palestinians envisage the heartland of their state, they're very determined and pushing ahead all the time with more and more Jewish settlement there. There are people that will say technically it's still possible to come to some kind of partition because the majority of the settler population actually live in settlements in what we call the blocks, the settlement blocks, which are closer in to the 67 line and potentially could be included in a future modified border, which would involve some land swaps between Israel and the Palestinian future state, if there were to be one. What we've seen is, yes, as you know, a growth of the smaller outlying ideological settlements that are not near the Israeli boundary. They are just becoming more and more entrenched. Some of them are illegal, even in Israeli terms. They were never authorized by uh, any government here, but with a a wink and a nod, were able to set up and stay. And some of those are now 30 years old. Mm. Tell us about uh, the significance of two pieces of legislation. I think one didn't actually survive a Supreme Court challenge, but the other certainly stands. First of all, what is this 2017 regularisation law and what did it attempt to do? The regularisation law, that was actually um, drafted originally by a settler activist who's a lawyer and is now actually a member of the parliament here. A lot of these outposts I was speaking about, the reason they aren't authorized by the Israeli government, even right-wing governments here, is because they sit partially or wholly on privately owned Palestinian land. And although the Supreme Court of Israel has never really ruled on the legality of the settlements explicitly, which most of the world consider to be illegal under a violation of of international law. The Supreme Court here has staunchly upheld the rights of private Palestinian landowners. Property rights are supreme. So you've had a, a clash for years between the Supreme Court and the ideological settlers. So they came up with this draft law, which would basically force Palestinian landowners to give up their land to settlers who'd already settled on it, supposedly in good faith, i.e. not necessarily knowing at the time that it was private land, and in return have to accept either alternative land or some kind of compensation. 
the Supreme Court did indeed strike that down. Yeah. The other bill, though, that does stand, and you say that it's a source of ongoing tension, it's only a few years old, the 2018 nation-state law. What did that say? The nation-state law, that was in the works for many years by people, ideological activists, mostly on the right, who felt that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we have the Declaration of Independence from 1948 that aspired to equality for everybody living within Israel's borders. But we don't have a constitution. Israel has never managed, partly because of all the internal conflicts and competing worldviews here, to actually formally write a constitution. What we have is a sort of quasi-constitutional set of basic laws that uh, are passed in the parliament and that the Supreme Court at some point gave a kind of quasi-constitutional status to and measures other legislation by whether they stand up or don't stand up to the principles of these basic laws. There was never any law in Israel saying that Israel's a Jewish state and what that means. So the nation-state law comes along in 2018 And yes, it anchors Israel's Jewish character, says that the Jewish people have the unique right to self-determination within Israel's boundaries and kind of prioritized the Jewish nature above democracy or equality in that the law never actually mentioned, no mention at all of equality or democracy. And therefore, it's extremely controversial. The Supreme Court was asked to examine that law, and because it's a basic law and the Supreme Court has never struck down a basic law, they let it stand, but they interpreted it. They said, we're interpreting this law in a way that shouldn't impinge on equality, even though equality is not mentioned in it. This is the Religion and Ethics Report with Andrew West. We're speaking with Isabel Kirshner. She's the New York Times correspondent in Jerusalem, and we're speaking about Isabel's new book, The Land of Hope and Fear, Israel's Battle for Its Inner Soul. Isabel, the former president of Israel, Reuben Rivlin, spoke of the four tribes of modern Israel. I'm going to try to discuss each of them if we can. Surely these four tribes, Isabel, the secular Jews, the national religious, who are the nationalists and the Zionists, the Palestinians and the ultra-Orthodox, surely they were fated never to get along. They all have absolutely competing, contradictory worldviews. Let's begin from there. (laughs) So you have secular mainstream Israelis, and we're throwing in to that category sort of mainstream traditional Israelis who might practice parts of the religion. The classic example is our might go to synagogue on the Sabbath on Saturday morning and then go to a soccer match in the afternoon, you know. And then you have the religious Zionist camp, which has grown in number, but certainly in influence, as you noted, Andrew, because of the politics here in the coalition governments. They would like to settle the greater land of Israel. They are ultimately messianic. Some of them do very much believe in the state and the Israeli democracy, but some don't and would like to see more of a theocracy here, going back to a kind of biblical model. And you have people now talking about splitting the country into Israel and Judea as a result. And then you have the ultra-Orthodox who 
only give de facto recognition to the state in the first place and don't even believe in a sovereign state until the Messiah comes. Which I imagine would mean that it clashes somewhat with the vision of the founders. Ben-Gurion, David Ben-Gurion, the founding prime minister and state builder here, he was of the view that, oh, well, in time, they will see the light and they will probably (laughs) blend into secular Israel and their influence will fade away. And he came to what was known as a status quo agreement with them, which meant that they could have an autonomous education system in their schools. They could teach their kids whatever they wanted, which generally did not include secular subjects like math or English or science, and that they wouldn't have to serve in the Israeli military. Now, they were a few hundred at the time. He gave an exemption to 400 yeshiva students, Torah students at the time, which has grown exponentially because the families, it's part of the uh, ethos in that community Mm. to have very large families and try and replace those lost in the Holocaust. (laughs) And you have a minimum of seven children per family. And, of course, there's the one-fifth of the population that are Palestinian. And the Palestinian Arab population, who are very much caught between their identity, their Palestinian national identity, and their sentiments with the broader Palestinian public, and including the occupied territories, and the fact that they, over the 75 years of Israel's existence, have actually created very much an identity of their own as Israeli Palestinians. And yeah. They're not going anywhere either. Uh, Isabel, I think people from the outside looking in would quite understandably think that the major division in Israel is between Jewish Israelis and the displaced uh, Palestinians in the West Bank. But this is one of the things that I just found so interesting about this book. How significant and how enduring is this split between the Ashkenazi Jews who come largely from Europe and who survived, you know, the most awesome tragedy of the Shoah, and the Mizrahi Jews, the Jews who came from uh, the Middle East and and North African countries. How significant and enduring is that divide? It's really interesting, Andrew, because over time you expect in a country old grudges and old resentments to kind of fade with the generations. But what we're seeing in a way is that that divide On a day-to-day level, Israelis, Mizrahi or Ashkenazi, just get along just fine. Many families are mixed now. You don't know who's Mizrahi, who's Ashkenazi to a large extent. And yet there is a very, very deep resentment and divide that is playing out in the country's politics all the time. And I'll explain briefly, if you'll allow. Please. In the... So before the state was founded in 1948, most of the state builders, the the people who were here pre-state, were largely Ashkenazi Jews. They'd come from Eastern Europe, Central Europe. Some of them had fled anti-Semitism there way before the Holocaust and World War II. They heeded Theodore Herzl's call to establish a state. Right, absolutely. It was considered a kind of salvation and and to have a Jewish national homeland. And that, of course, was at the time of nation states being the be all and end all. And then 1948, when the state was fighting its war of independence, when the Arab armies invaded to try and stop the establishment of the state, 
you had people literally coming straight from Europe, having survived the concentration camps of the Holocaust and fighting in the, on the front lines. Then once Israel was established, you had a young country that wanted more population and had an ideal of the kind of biblical idea of the ingathering of exiles. And at the same time, you had the Arab and Muslim governments becoming very anti-Zionist because of this new implant in the region as they saw it and the Palestinian refugee issue that was caused as a result of the hostilities around the establishment of the state. So many of these very ancient Jewish communities in these countries, you had a huge wave of immigration from those North African and Middle Eastern countries to Israel. They came, they were received not very well. They were, in a lot of cases, dumped in remote areas of the country where Israel needed population and had no work and lived in poverty. The resentment grew into a kind of Mizrahi rebellion against the dominant Ashkenazi establishment. And really that wave of Mizrahi resentment gave the victory to Menachem Begin and the Likud and the right wing for the first time in 1977. Yeah. And ever since then, till today, most of the governments of Israel have actually been led by the right wing with a very large support base among the Mizrahi Jews. Yeah. The thing that struck me, though, running through this narrative is uh, the words, you don't use them, but they always ring in my ear what Albert Camus once called the algebra of blood. Is there basically a kind of competition between Ashkenazi and Mizrahi to say who suffered more? Was it those who survived the Shoah or was it those who were expelled? It's a very interesting point. And we're talking about half of the Jewish population here. We're not talking about a small minority. Splits roughly half and half between Ashkenazi and Mizrahi. But what we're seeing is the younger people who are more educated than their parents and their grandparents and have more time to delve into these issues because their grandparents and parents were just busy trying to survive and make a living in these remote areas of the country a lot of the time. But their children are now going back to the archives and saying, hey, we were wronged in many ways, including things like land distribution and uh, distribution of resources here, and are saying, you know, we suffered too. Now, it's true, the Ashkenazi state builders, they drained the swamps, they struggled, they suffered malaria, the ones who were went through the Holocaust and came here and fought in the 48 war, yes, of course, they suffered and sacrificed very much for this country. But by the way, though, Isabel, weren't the Ashkenazi survivors of the Holocaust basically expected to suppress that? Absolutely. So the ethos of the new Jew in Israel was of a, a strong character, didn't have a exile mentality, as it was kind of referred to at the time was rooted in the land, worked the land, was suntanned and strong and independent. The idea of Jews coming from camps where there was this notion of them having gone like sheep to slaughter, that was a kind of image that had emerged from the Holocaust, didn't go very well with this Zionist ethos of the new 
strong, independent Jews. So many Holocaust survivors who came here, yes, they suppressed the trauma and their stories and just got on. But, you know, to some degree, maybe wanted to just get on with a new life and Mm. build new families and rebuild their own lives and not dwell on it. But then it all came out when we had the trial here of Adolf Eichmann after he was captured Mm. in Argentina and brought to Israel. And suddenly the whole country was transfixed hearing these testimonies of what these people had gone through, the witnesses Mm. taking the stand against Eichmann. Then it all came out. This is the Religion and Ethics Report uh, with Andrew West and we are speaking this week with Isabel Kirshner about this intriguing new book of hers, The Land of Hope and Fear, Israel's Battle for Its Inner Soul. This really strong picture that you give us of these two Jewish groups raised a very powerful question in my mind. Given the culture of the Mizrahi, the food, the music, the language in some case, certainly the landscapes of the mind, should it surprise me that the Mizrahi do not have more, perhaps even solidarity with the Palestinians? Because they have in effect become the ground troops of the political right. It's a very interesting question, Andrew. And yeah, it's baffling when you look at it from the outside. The Mizrahi culture is very ascendant here. People talk about the Mizrahim as, as the new elite because the music scene, as you said, the food, um, and even politically, you know, the power that the Mizrahi base has given over the decades now to the Likud party of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and the right and allowed these uh, governments to form election after election. They're no longer underdogs, even though many still have a sort of latent resentment and underdog mentality against what they see as the old Ashkenazi elites. But when it comes to the Palestinian issue, there's not much feeling of solidarity, partly just because if you're on the right, then that's not where you are. Secondly, the sort of hardcore Mizrahi who still live in these uh, peripheral areas of the country will say to you, you know, we know we came from the Arab world, we got on fine with our neighbours, but you have to show strength and you can't uh, show weakness and you can't give in against the Arab enemies and, and the Palestinians are seen as the enemy. When it comes to ongoing violence between the two sides, you will see the Mizrahim very strongly supporting the patriotic Israeli front on that. And little sympathy, I would say, for the Palestinian cause. I do want to squeeze in a reference, though, to another very important community. And it was one that is sort of late to the party, as it were, but it's had a huge impact on Israeli politics and Israeli society, who arrived in Israel en masse in the 1990s? Okay, so we're talking about the Russian-speaking Israelis who came en masse from the crumbling and former Soviet Union. And we're talking about not just from Russia, but from all the republics around. I think we saw about a million Russian-speaking Israelis coming into the country at that time. The government not only was happy to take in Jews from the former Soviet Union, they actually persuaded the Americans to make it more difficult for them to go there so that they would come to Israel. 
And they've had a tremendous impact on Israeli society. It was an injection of a sort of European secular culture. (laughs) Many of them engineers who gave a real boost to what was then Israel's nascent startup high-tech industry, which is now the engine of its economy, and also surfaced a lot of the huge problems we see today between religion and state, because many of these immigrants were not technically Jewish under Jewish law. Yeah, well, I was going to say, there's a big question mark there, uh, because they don't have matrilineal Judaism from the mother, and it is surely a sore point for Palestinians who, because I've read your reporting here, 75 years later, they still shake the keys to their homes that they lost in 1948, but yet you've had a decade of Russians who have dubious Jewish heritage. They've been welcomed, as, as you say. How much has this been a sore point? It has been a sore point with the Palestinians, and it's something that they have raised. I think less so now because we're talking, you know, 30 years on and and these Russian-speaking Israelis are just basically a part of Israel now. But yes, it was a very sore point in the 90s. Although, interestingly, because it was this secular injection of immigration and because many of the Russian-speaking Israelis were upset at the time with their conditions here um, and the housing uh, options, etc. Many of them actually voted against the right-wing government that was in when they were coming here and had quite a part in the election of Yitzhak Rabin and his Labour-led government in 1992, which of course led to the Oslo Accords, the first peace agreements or interim peace agreements between Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization. So there's ironies upon ironies here. Yeah, and Isabel, would one of those ironies be the so-called law of return? Just to go back one step, Israel has what it calls the law of return, which is a law that basically gives automatic Israeli citizenship to any Jew who wants to come and live here. And that extends to the spouses of Jews who may not be Jewish, their children, because you have families, and grandchildren. So any person who has one Jewish grandparent is actually eligible under the law of return to come to Israel and take citizenship. But it doesn't mean, as you noted, that they are Jewish under the halachic Jewish law where Judaism is passed down through the the mother, the matrilineal line. So now you have all these hundreds of thousands of people here who are eligible. And this is partly because if you go back to the Holocaust and the Nuremberg laws, anyone who had a Jewish grandparent was considered Jewish enough to be persecuted. And therefore, the thinking was, if you're Jewish enough to be persecuted, then you're Jewish enough to come to live in Israel and and find safe refuge. And that and family unification was part of the uh, idea. But what you have is this huge public now of Israeli citizens who serve in the army and are fully Israeli and fully part of society here. But for example, can't officially get married Mm. because marriage 
is all controlled by the religious authorities. It's given, uh, I think, the Cypriot uh, government a good market in offshore secular marriage. Um, listen, right. It, right. <laughs> it that is... used to be the case, but that used to be the case. You know, if you get married abroad legally and you come back married, then your marriage is recognised by the Israeli Interior Ministry. But you know what's happening today, Andrew? People are just not bothering getting officially married. So you have this huge industry now of alternative weddings, and it's kind of chaos. <laughs> Isabel Kirshner, she's the New York Times correspondent in Jerusalem. Isabel's been there for 30 years. I don't think there's any correspondent with a deeper knowledge of the country. And it's all come together in a new book. It's called The Land of Hope and Fear, Israel's Battle for Its Inner Soul. Isabel, thank you so much for joining us on the Religion and Ethics Report. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.